Hello and welcome to the Urban Health Podcast, Keeping Busy People Healthy. Today we have Kane Leatham. Kane, I am very grateful for the time you are investing coming onto the show. You have been helping people achieve the best version of themselves physically for decades. You train your clients in the gym, you educate them with nutrition and your impeccable courses inspire them by, and you also are a living, breathing example of the principles you teach. Kane, I have always admired you for your non-compromising approach to health, and it's an honour to have you on the show. Well, thank you very much. That's quite, a, quite an introduction. I'm not sure. Uh, and I don't like the decades. It makes me sound old. It is decades, but, you know, <laughs> I started very young. Yes, very young indeed. You've trained some big names, Kane. Do you care to share? Well, um, it depends what avenue we're talking about. I mean... Within the audience that you're working with and advising and helping lots of CEOs, I am a professional speaker and I've spoken to Academy of Chief Executives, Academy for Business Leaders and Entrepreneurs, including some quite high flyers in that industry within sports. My current CV sits at 87 British champions in various sports, track and field, boxing, bodybuilding and the like. I have 14 world champions, four world uh, record holders, including a cyclist who coached the likes of, well, he worked with Bradley Wiggins and Chris Hoy and six Miss Universe winners. Um, I've helped people with all avenues of um, health, including fertility, disease state, etc., and then the odd celebrity. If uh, we want to call them that, gladiators such as our new doll Jet from Gladiators was a student of mine and a client and lots of footballers, including uh, questionable behaviour, Stan Collymore and the like. So a very varied client base over a period now spanning, um, looking about 25 years. Kane, that's amazing. And you've also helped countless of, of regular regular Joes, as we call them. Um, people like me who just came to you f- uh, for solutions. Um, I have uh, ulcerative colitis. I don't make any secret of that. And you were fundamental in t- into my transformation uh, when it comes to my health. And I know that you've transformed the lives of countless, countless others. And I, I always wonder what keeps driving you. You know, why do you do it? Well, you know, if we're going to go warm with the Teresa, it's nice to give back. But it is amazing to see the transformation that I don't do. I give the advice, I do the assessments, diagnosis, give the script. You, Stephanie, did the work. Stephanie, by the way, was so dedicated to her own cause of health. She originally came to me after a long telephone conversation. She flew down from Edinburgh to Birmingham. We had a consultation, gave advice. Um, because of what I do within the realms of being an NLP master practitioner and also health assessments, including blood and stools and DNA, and etc., I was able to gather a lot of information. And Stephanie put that into context with her life and decided she wanted to learn more about it for herself, for her family. She is herself a giver, which is what strives my ambition to learn more. Um, and Cora Imparo is a famous quote. I have it actually tattooed upon myself and in a big plaque in the kitchen, which was said reputedly by Michelangelo in his 90s, says, I am still learning. So the thirst for knowledge and then sharing that knowledge, which I refer to as the truth, is I know something that also inspires Stephanie because she packed up her life in Edinburgh and moved to Birmingham for just short of a year to study all my courses. So we have a very similar uh, ethos as far as why we're doing it, I think, which is for the right reasons to give back, to help, and to see the end product. And for me, the most satisfying clients, as you said, I have lots of athletes and CEOs and celebs and all of that. 
it's probably 10% of my workload. Lots of people think that's what I do and that's all I do. A, that's not really my most inspiring work. It's amazing. I've had people on podiums at the Olympics getting a gold medal. I've had, you know, held up a Mr. and Miss Universe title. But I can give you names uh, of people. There's a, a lady called Lynette in Nottingham, and, and she always, you know, thanks me. Her son is now 13, 14 years old. And she was told she had polycystic ovaries. Actually, along with when I did some diagnosis, other gastrointestinal issues, etc. But she's opened up publicly about the polycystic ovaries because she was told at 17 she would never have children. She has a healthy 13-year-old boy that she brought to me at seven years of age and had me in tears because she said, without my help, he wouldn't be here. That is what drives me. That is what inspires me. And that is probably one of the most satisfying, if you want to call it, cases that I've ever worked with because that's life-changing. I have two little boys myself. And there's nothing more precious. So essentially, that's that's what I do and why I do. Okay, and that's just breathtaking. Thank, thank you very much. Let's get straight into the topic of today, which is hormones. Um, I want to understand uh, how hormones have an impact and play a part in body composition. So let's start with insulin. Insulin is a fat. Okay. Insulin is a fat storage hormone. Uh, so what stimulates insulin? Okay, well, just to intercept then that you're not incorrect, but, and I know we're going to move on to cortisol, lots of these hormones are demonized, so insulin will encourage fat storage, potentially, but insulin, essentially calling it out as a fat storage um, hormone, kind of demonizes it, so it's produced by the beta cells, the islet of hands within the pancreas, but it's essential, it's a transporter of nutrients, including, obviously, glucose, which is broken down carbohydrates, but we need that, we utilize insulin as a pushing force, if you like, uh, via, it gets all very fancy, but receptor sites on muscle called GLUT4 receptors, and they absorb carbohydrates. This is essential for our energy, especially within the central nervous system and brain. So high-flying execs who are stressed, we need some carbs. Okay, now it's regulated by body type, by other hormones, by energy expenditure, by personality, type A personality, go-getters will need possibly more. People using high-intensity exercises, they're released from the stress or because of their sport will need more. But carbs need to be regulated, and obviously that will be a different conversation. But when we have a surplus of carbs, we have potentially what we'd call excess insulin outputs, and that will encourage that storage. Now, Insulin's not evil, but it needs to be understood and respected. If we overeat, if we take in too many fast-acting carbs, I don't like the GI thing, it's a bit outdated, but fast-acting carbohydrates, we get a surge of insulin. Now, we can measure that. This is the thing now with science. Utilizing science and good quality physiological labs, biochemistry, hematology, and the like, we can measure insulin, but it's not insulin per se that we measure. So we can measure insulin response and sensitivity by doing what's called a glucose tolerance test. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I did lots of studies for a master's degree and I volunteered for that one, and it's very simple. Resting blood sugar, or well, fasting blood sugar in the morning, pop a load of glucose tablets or glucose I drink or any, any other brand, take a load of sugar and measure your blood sugar rise and then response drop down post-insulin output every 20 minutes over a period of possibly two hours for the test. The damage caused by that sugar being residents within our blood circulatory system is called glycation, and that's where the problem happens. So insulin removes that sugar so it doesn't cause this glycation. Easiest way to explain that, 
The red blood cells are coated in a sticky sugar. Imagine a toffee apple. So the apple per se isn't bad, but a toffee apple, is it so healthy? No, and it sticks to other things. So we can measure that with something called HbA1c, glycosylated hemoglobin. These things will be understood by people that are diabetic because that is what is measured at the hospital. They may self-measure blood glucose, but what's important is what damage has been done over a period of three, four months to those red blood cells. And the reason is HbA1c retrospectively measures the red blood cell life, which is approximately 120 days. But a more unique test that really looks into and the damaging factors of insulin and what type of diabetes and in the increased risk of diabetes is something called C-peptide. Now, C-peptide is more at the fore of science and testing. It's not done within the NHS protocols. Insulin is, is very fast-acting. It's half-life is three to five minutes. So to actually measure that, it's a bit too acute. Now, C-peptide, its life is 20 to 30 minutes, and it's like if you want the after-effect. They're getting too fancy. The beta cells, the olives of Langerhans and the pancreas produce something called pro-insulin. You've got alpha chains and beta chains. They're chopped and leave C-peptides. So in plain English, when you measure C-peptide, it tells you how much insulin has been produced. And therefore, an excess insulin is going to overly enthusiastically store body fat because the muscle and other tissues, like the liver, stores glycogen, does not have the time to absorb the vast amount of fast-acting sugars we've eaten. So insulin overactivity mm-hmm. is detrimental, but insulin response in a controlled manner with a controlled lifestyle and an understanding of is actually beneficial because it helps us store the energy within the fuel tank known as glycogen. So uh, I know that might be a bit long-winded, but yeah. our lifestyle, our habits, our behaviour, especially our eating patterns and the choices of foods, will control the insulin output, and we are in charge. Yeah. No, I think, I think that's amazing. If that amazing. goes wrong with diabetes, then obviously there are other things, and there are natural things, alpha-lipoic acid and, and all sorts of other amazing things we can do to upregulate the enzyme activity and the receptor affinity and all of this science stuff. But insulin, when we barge our bodies with fast-acting sugars, we are creating the issue, and we need to take responsibility for that. We need to own it. Yeah, and it's about education, about understanding what, what goes in your body. For, for those who are listening who didn't understand all of that, that's perfectly fine. If you call us, we, we can go through it with you and and uh, explain more um, around that. And because um, I, I love the depth, Kane, and uh, different people listening to this will have different levels of, of knowledge. So I'm just sort of making people move. Feel- no, of course. And, uh, you know, Steph, I get a little carried away, but for the people that have an interest, obviously, these things can be somewhat Googled, but be careful what you read. There may be people that are diabetic or early stage diabetes, you know, whether it's diet controlled or things like metformin before insulin. And if they get this education, they can stop, honestly, stop the need for going insulin dependent. Yeah. And, uh, and I think we need to educate more, and sometimes that does mean throwing out some of the longer terms because then they know what tests to act for. And you know I'm very up about being preemptive with your health, and that requires an investment in time, energy, but sometimes financially because you're going out of the realms of the fantastic NHS, which is breaking down and they can't support all these tests and some of them they don't even know about as you know I have doctors as clients yep. and they send people to me um, but these things are available and that's the problem most people don't know yeah most people don't know and, and most people just take take what they um, receive uh, as, a, as a diagnosis as the, as, as the answer and oh, oh well I've been diagnosed with this therefore I can't do anything about it or 
Um, there's always yes. one. There's always one more than one solution. Um, okay, shall we move on to human growth hormone, Kane? Okay. Okay. No so, what is human growth hormone? Why does that matter, and how can we get more of it naturally? Okay, so human growth hormone is wide ranging. So, first thing I want to say, um, and uh, you know, let's be honest, the, the hormone we just talked about, insulin, which is very dangerous to mess about with and abuse, but human growth hormone for years and years has been used and to differentiate abuse, and there is a difference within sports. And I know a lot of inside information that people would rather probably not know about superstars of sports, including a superstar of cycling, let's say, that actually came out on a popular talk show. I knew about that for years before because I have an insight, and it's not my business because that wasn't my clients. But they do have a profound effect in the body. Now, human growth hormone naturally secreted by the pituitary gland when we go into deep sleep and post-intense activity. Weight training is brilliant. There's a recent study just come out to show the increased level of muscle tissue in males and females offsets detrimental effects and increases uh, mortality rates and the quality of life, especially around heart attacks. So basically having more muscle reduces your risk of a heart attack. And this is independent of lifestyle and fat, etc. So there's some phenomenal research coming out. Now, growth hormones should be called the healing hormone or the rejuvenating hormone, or the anti-aging hormone, and this is where it is applied, especially in the States, but over here, this is coming more to the fore. Growth hormone is a bit of a misnomer because it's not going to make you big. If you're an elite bodybuilder taking loads of growth hormone, it has massive beneficial effects, and most people use it in track and field to rejuvenate and heal damaged tissue, tendons, ligaments, and the like. It will keep body fat down. Your skin will be better. Your hair will be better because essentially... And I don't want to glamorize it, but essentially it slows down and in some cases reverses the aging process. It declines from the age of 20 to 30s, depending on your lifestyle and uh, your food intake. There are certain foods which can obviously help, and it is a protein structure, so we need to be careful if we've got low protein intake. But it's known to improve sleep because it's synonymous and it's actually produced in a positive manner, i.e. pumps out small amounts for a short period of time when we go into deep sleep. Um, but it decreases fat, it improves mood, phenomenally memory and recall, lots of the things that decline with age. Uh, even effects on your lipid profile, your cholesterols, boosting the immune system as accelerate, it said accelerates healing because it's increasing tissue rejuvenation, turnover and repair, what's called remodeling. It helps with bone density. It can lower blood pressure. Um, even diabetics, because insulin we just talked about and growth hormone, they're antagonistic to each other. So if you've got excess insulin output, you are insulin sensitive, if you like, and this can happen. Mm -hmm. And again, we can measure that with a glucose tolerance test. Natural growth hormone, yeah, yeah. that's what we really should be looking at, or endogenous outputs which are, are you know, maximised, and then when people move into the external, this can offset the effects of diabetes. So it sounds like a wonder drug, and potentially it is, but we make it natural. That's what we should be looking at optimising, definitely first and foremost. And then, you know, as we age, lots of things, your libido might go down and, you know, uh, menopausal symptoms, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, because we have got lots of profound benefits, but I do want to specify it needs to be respected and understood like insulin because from what I've said, it almost sounds like, let's all have a bit of that. And I've had this over the years. I've lectured at high levels uh, within universities and stuff on endocrinology. And it's almost like everybody's on the internet wanting to buy it. That's not necessarily the answer. But yes, 
it should be looked into once you hit, you know, maybe 30 or whatever, uh, maximising and good quality sleep. Not the amount of sleep you have necessarily or the time you go to bed, which is important, but the quality of your sleep, what's known as sleep hygiene, the darkness of the room, etc. normal working patterns, so people on shift work, their growth hormone output is all over the place. It's generally measured by measuring something called IGF-1, by the way. It's difficult, like insulin, to measure growth hormone. So there are other factors that you would use to measure it and then there are ways to maximize that but naturally um, fasting helps stimulate it naturally Uh, lifting weights helps stimulate it naturally sleep hygiene as you're saying yeah yeah Yeah. so there's lots of but people need to take control again they need to take ownership they need to be educated and unfortunately there are people who want to shortcut that now when you start playing shortcut you throw everything out of balance because when you live a healthy lifestyle, get your sleep hygiene, eat well, get your protein up, fasting periods possibly, intense weight training sessions. So when I say lift weights, I'm not talking about, I won't mention any names, but you know, manufactured aerobic classes where they pretend to lift weights. I'm talking about intense weight lifting, compound exercise. You will greatly increase your natural growth hormone output. Yeah, and and also diet has a huge impact as well. Um, because yeah. it, it, again, because they're antagonistic. If you're eating in a surplus and insulin is is uh, all over the place, then it does lower human growth hormone. Yeah, and this is the thing that athletes have done for years. And I'll be honest. I mean, I, I was the area manager of a big health and fitness bodybuilding type shop. If you want to call it that, sold lots of supplements years ago. And the trend was, and I did it. Uh, you know, tall, skinny guy naturally came at the Air Force, wanted to put some muscle on. So it was eat the carbs post workout, during workout, get the carbs in, load the carbs back. I don't do any of that anymore, not, certainly not for myself, but not for my clients, outside of potentially ultra-endurance sports, multi-day activities, sort of friends and the like. Because the minute you finish your workout, boom, you're going to get increased growth hormone output. Then you take a sugary carb drink, which is all too commercial, even the so-called you know, sports ranges, they're full of sugar and stuff. So then you're going to get the insulin output to offset this glycation damage. The body's protecting itself. It's an emergency response. It's natural. Thousands of years of evolution. Now, that's going to shut down growth hormone output because as your insulin goes up, your growth hormone stops. All of those benefits I just explained from growth hormone, including tissue repair and recovery, including lower body fat and everything else, you've just turned it off. That's ridiculous. So there are many, many people doing bad practice and unfortunately being touted by the sales of commercial products, by marketing, by very poorly educated personal trainers and a questionable nutritionist dietitians and the like. Uh, and that's going to get a bit PC, so we won't go into that. But so much of the information being given is contrary to what is actually science. Yeah, and I think it's a shame that uh, my some of my clients have followed certain uh, advice that's in, in common practice, having, oh, just have a small protein bar after your workout or have this energy ball that contains 50% date paste. And they don't realize that they're causing that they're causing a, a hormonal mess and is derailing their efforts. So they're doing everything that they think they're doing right. And then just one small thing like that can derail their progress. So I'm going to move on to, yeah, I'm going to move on to cortisol and adrenaline. And in a lot of my clients are stressed. They're busy city executives or they're entrepreneurs. Uh, their lifestyle stimulates cortisol and adrenaline, which is useful actually in working out. But if it's there constantly all the time, it can have a huge impact on appetite, mood, and body composition. What, what do we have to say about that, Kane? 
Okay. So again, first thing I want to say is not yourself, but so many people talk about cortisol and demonize it. So we need cortisol. Controlled levels of cortisol will actually mobilize and increase amino acid availability within tissue, not just muscle, but bone, tendon, ligaments, hormones like growth hormone and insulin are actually components of proteins in themselves. It will stimulate the liver to help convert amino acids by a process called deamination into glucose, and that's going to store energy. It's going to mobilize fat. Say that again. It will actually mobilize fat from adipocytes and adipose tissue and make it available for energy production, i.e. fuel for workout. So cortisol under a controlled level, and this is why we can't the balance, is brilliant for helping us to burn fat. It actually maintains a resistance to stress, including boosting our immune system, and it maintains mood and emotional stability. But excess, when it goes out of whack, and a stressful lifestyle emotionally as well as overtraining physically, and one generally leads to the other because people take high-intensity exercise as a stress relief for an emotionally driven life, so be that work or relationships, I'm going to go to the gym and work this out. You dig in a big hole because now we have potentially excess outputs. Now, this can be measured, saliva, test bloods, etc. I prefer the saliva over 24 hours, waking cortisol. Again, you can get very good at measuring this. But now we've got excess outputs, overstimulation, oversensitive. Now, this is known as an adaptation phase. Our body is doing what nature has designed. Yeah? Survival. This is nothing new. We understood fight or flight water cannon in 1929. Reaction resistance, which is what we're talking about, reaction to distress, and so in 1956. This has been known about forever. But decades later, we're still getting it wrong because people are burning out, and I see that all the time. So excess cortisol, now we affect negatively the effect of glucose because we have an excess buildup within blood sugar. We release excess sugar from the liver. Say that again. Even if you don't eat sugary foods, what is stored in your liver will get dumped into your bloodstream. So if you have the average male, maybe 400 grams, a bodybuilding um, elite athlete is much bigger, so it makes sense they store more carbs. But if you have two guys the same size, one who doesn't train will store 400 grams in muscle, 100, 125 in the liver. The guy that trains will store in excess of 1,000 for the same size. So this is why we need to train. This is why we need to exercise because that means it's less available to do damage in the blood glycation and less available to store fat. But excess cortisol increases protein breakdown, so now we're storing fat and losing muscle. It demineralizes bones. It interferes with skin regeneration and healing tissue. It actually shrinks lymphatic tissue, so our immune system. There's a massive link, a whole endocrinology, and this is why we can't just look at one aspect interlinked and doctors get this wrong all the time even endocrinologists there's a very detrimental effect on the thyroid with excess cortisol and hand in hand with cortisol we have epinephrine and norepinephrine the americans call it adrenaline epinephrine is adrenaline and then noradrenaline or norepinephrine they all interrelate so now we have overstimulation we're constantly in fights or flights but when you lower your active free t3 because of excess cortisol you're overriding a whole load of systems. And then we have coffee to get us through the day. And we just add to that. And another massive detrimental effect of high levels, consistently chronic, ongoing excess cortisol, which is built into one of the tests I, I use, is a lowering of something called secretory IgA. This is a main immune defense within your elementary canal, your nasal, mouth, all the way down. Now, that protects you from so much ingested negative material, including 
viruses, bacteria, parasites, protozoa, etc. That when you are stressed, you are more prone to so many opportunistic infections. Mm-hmm. So you, you're shot. This needs to be respected. It needs to be assessed, and it needs to be managed. And again, you can support the adrenals. You know, some throwaways. Extra vitamin C, pantothenic acid B5, extra magnesium, extra zinc, and then there are specialty serbs. And I don't want to go into too much because obviously each case should be assessed and prescribed on its own merits. But yeah, cortisol needs to be understood. But certainly a lot of people, I've got school teachers and all sorts, who are absolutely shocked to bits. And it's because of high energy output, both emotionally and physically, and it's been unchecked. Now I've got athletes who train really hard at high-level Olympics, and then maybe got emotional issues going on as well, home life. Now, you can't say, leave the house, leave the kids, leave the wife or the husband. You can't say, leave you know, your training alone, train once a week. <laughs> They're Olympians, they can't. Now, I do decrease their training, but you need to then do damage limitation and nutritional support, maybe meditation, time out. You need to recharge that battery. So cortisol can be very detrimental, but again, we do need it. And in relation of something called DHEA as well, which should also be assessed, and this then starts giving us the big picture, the jigsaw of health, as I call it. Kane, that was very insightful. And I, I often find with city bankers and people who work in the city, they go from being 10 years inactive to then working with me and becoming very, very active and to the point where they overdo it. So they've got a, a high-intensity job, they've got a difficult home life, and then they're doing... Uh, sessions in addition to what I've prescribed and they go to classes where it's high intensity interval training which isn't bad in itself but uh, on if you include that as part of someone's regime when they've already got a pretty high intense life then there's only so much the central nervous system can take and that's why we need a holistic view when we're making recommendations for our clients to serve them best for their well-being as, and their health as well as their body composition goals. Um, which brings me on to my slimmer clients who are just at the last uh, part of their transformation. So some of my clients are very slim already, but they struggle with that last three kilos. And they, they call this mm-hmm. stubborn belly fat. What is the cause and how can yeah. we solve it? Well, it, it could be multifactorial, so we require some assessment. First of all, body composition assessment. Is it actual body fat or is it bloating distension? Because what goes unchecked, undiagnosed in a lot of people is maybe food sensitivity. So not necessarily an allergy, but a sensitivity, intolerance, or whatever you want to call it. Someone dismissed that as not a true science, but I'm telling you now, I've done a lot of assessments and I've re- removed some foods maybe even over a short period of time. I've got a young lady at the moment who's a solicitor and a school teacher that I kind of half just mentioned with the adrenal issue because when you are stressed and that norepinephrine, the adrenaline and the cortisol are high, you're more sensitive, the immune system takes a dive and then you know your, your reactions to the food are very different. And both of those get bloated. And I can tell you with an absolute fact, a young lady who I actually trained 14 years ago for a wedding, she had a couple of children, she's come back to get in shape. When she goes to London which is why I don't go to London too much. She gets stressed. Uh, she flies all over the world. She's actually just gone to South Africa. She's back for a few days. Uh, she always gets a little bit stressed when she's away because she misses her children. But she reacts every time she goes to London, just the pace of life, the pressure on her at head office and the certain company she works for that I mention. And she always bloats up and distends. 
and within two days of being home, it goes down. So she's becoming more reactive to the same food. She's following the same regime that I've given her, but in London she reacts and elsewhere she doesn't. So we need to understand the difference between distension bloating and actual what's called central adiposity, which is the fat held around the midsection, which we know is detrimental. The assumption being if it's on the outside around the middle, it's on the inside around the middle, it's around the organs. Not always the case, but, you know, nine times out of ten quite possible. And cortisol plays a role there. Now, there are certain schools of thought that were very popular years ago and massively overtouted, not necessarily scientific, but high cortisol can deposit fat around the middle, but we do not assess that with calipers around the umbilical uh, and the obliques. We assess that by blood tests or saliva tests, proper lab tests. But in short, ongoing stress, physical or emotional, will be seen to store more fat around the middle. Now, that in itself is detrimental, that uh, secretes certain chemicals, um, which are inflammatory, cytokines and the like. Again, don't want to get too technical, but that causes a detrimental effect on the body uh, and mood and the immune system and all sorts of other things. So there are health implications of holding fat around the middle. But it is true that stress can hold fat around the middle. We need to differentiate between is it fat or is it just bloating distension? Uh, of the intestines and the organs within. Um, we need to look at the food choices and maybe using some exclusion. And then we have just genetic predisposition to storage in certain areas. Somebody that's estrogen dominance is going to store fat around certain areas, normally around the hip size, buttocks, back of the arms, etc. And again, we can look at measuring these what's called polymorphisms, uh, genes, if you like, which is actually the, the gene action. Um, we can measure the hormones. I know we're going to move on a little bit to oestrogen and menopause, so I don't want to preempt too much, but there are three main types of oestrogen. We talk about oestrogen like it's just oestrogen, but it's not. It's E1, E2, E3, and we'll cover that. So certain types of hormone will store on different people in certain areas. So I have people go, oh, it's on my back. Oh, I store it around my knees. I store it on my bum. I store it on my mid-area. So sometimes it's just that's the pattern. That's the genetics. But I would look into the food issues. I would look into the stress issues. Um, both of these can be easily you know, tested and it's not too intrusive. You don't even need to take venous blood. So uh, it would be easy to say to, to your client, well, try and avoid London and you'll you'll see the symptoms d- dissipate. But um... <laughs> Yeah, it won't work for your client. No, I think um... for people who love London and people who... Uh, thrive, but just to be more I'm aware. Not I will go once or twice a year, <laughs> all the time. I'm going for winter wonderland with my little one this year. Oh, yeah. And then I get there, and <laughs> Yeah. So uh, there, there is there is a constant stress, but uh, people it, the, that live in London actually thrive on that stress. They they like it. They're sort of addicted to that buzz that London gives. Absolutely. There's, there's nowhere quite like yeah. it, and uh, it is well, wonderful. And that's the type A personality. I mean, that's what makes success, however you gauge that, measure that, in their lives. Plus, there's a price to pay. As you said there, going straight from that, because that's their personality, and they haven't exercised since they left school or left university, and all of a sudden they're 45, and they're going to get in shape. Boom, they go in, four on. Uh And that's not smart. You wouldn't buy a car that was 45 years old and take it to the racetrack and expect it to perform in the ultimate lap time. You know, there's work to be done. We've got to operate suspension, the gearbox, with this, that, you know, I'm not into cars, but you know what I mean? It's, it's, yeah. it's a nice little analogy. You think, respect the vehicle that we are carrying around yeah. and take advice 
and sometimes that means pre-assessments, but you can ultimately get that performance. And I know people that have got into ultra marathons and the like in their 50s and 60s. I just trained uh, a student of mine who's done my courses like self-definite and she's just competing in her first natural misfigure shot. She's 55 years of age. Wow. And she was a qualified personal trainer, quite a client base, close to London actually. And what I taught her, not just on the courses, but face-to-face, post-assessment, she invested a lot in hormone tests and she's done a DNA, so we really had a bespoke program. She stepped on stage, her first ever show, 55 years of age, and has come second in the British Championships. Oh, wow. So I'm not going to say she's won, but, you know, she didn't have the best genetics. She does have a bit of hormone disruption with her estrogen and the like. Uh, there's actually a, a mild thyroid issue there, which she's on legitimate medication from the doctor. So theoretically, she's working against what we found but what we did was work smarter not harder and we graduated a program she thought she trained hard now she knows what hard training is but this was over a period of months and months to get her there not the first workout is a beast in i'm ex-military that doesn't work for anyone and this is why it takes an educated and respectful and empathetic trainer and not somebody that is running you know I don't like to say boot camp because some of them may be well done, but you know what I mean? That's not the mentality. So you're absolutely right. But the people who are the type A personalities running success, successful businesses, they've taken that role and they thrive on that. I'm, I like that. I, mean, I love deadlines. I'll work hard at the last minute and boom, I go in pump full of epinephrine. Um, and that's great. But if you keep doing that, there is a price to pay. You are going into energy debt. Yeah. So it takes a little bit of slow down, work with me. And if you understand the science of all these hormones, you can go to greater depth and I know that's what you do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can't believe that the training that you gave me had any empathy whatsoever, but if you say it did, yeah. then I'll... <laughs> anyway, so, uh, yeah, it's look about... Look in the mirror, look how good you're looking. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> genetics, genetics. Um, no, <laughs> so, but with, with, with clients, when it comes to stress, just being aware of stress is, is helpful. Just increasing your awareness, understanding what triggers it, understanding how you can avoid it, and the stress that you can't change and that you don't wish to eliminate from your life, then we need better coping strategies around managing that stress and ongoing um, for, your, for your mental health uh, as well as your body composition goals. And I'm going to talk about... Sorry, yes, yes, Kane? Can I just add one thing there? Of you're course. absolutely right, and, and you understand the this, that, and the other, what, what is going on in your life in that moment of time. And this is something I do with athletes. If the proverbial who pits the fan in a relationship, in work, in whatever, and the stress levels go up emotionally, and especially if it's affecting your sleep and your eating habits, you must have the discipline to cycle your training and ease off, take your foot off the gas. And I've done this with athletes coming into big competitions. I was talking about a young lad. He lost, and honestly, five and a half stone of body fat in seven months. Wow. First ever competition at 20 years of age, his name is Craig, was in Las Vegas, and it was the World Championships, natural drug testing bodybuilding. But for two weeks, about it was about two months out from the show, so he'd been training hard for about five months. He'd done amazing, but it, you could see he was getting to him. He was burning out. His sleep was affected. All these classic what we call overtraining syndrome. And with overtraining syndrome, very often it's poor coping mechanisms, it's poor nutrition, but he had all that in place. He was getting his massage, he was taking time out from his training, didn't train contrary to what people think every day. He trained as a bodybuilder four times a week. He was eating very well, he was supplementing, but still it was taking its toll. 
they enforced a two-week layoff. He was like, Kane, I'll never be ready. I said, you won't even make the show if you don't take these two weeks off. Now, again, he didn't win. He came fourth in the world. He thought he'd let me down. I was fourth in the world, and you've never stepped on stage. That is unbelievable. It's like coming fourth in the Olympics, and you've never even done a county championships. But he did take two weeks off because I told him to. Now, I can't be in control of everyone. You can't be in control of everyone. People need to take ownership again. I'm going back to that word, but they can't do that if they're not educated. So I'm very much about the education. I don't own clients. I don't do direct debits and standing orders. They work with me because it's an ongoing relationship. And many of my clients have become good friends. And, you know, they can tap into me as and when. It's not necessarily a be-all and end-all. I need to be, speak to Kane every day because I'm not really teaching them how to be responsible, how to be individually respectful of themselves. So sometimes easing off one pedal because you're pushing on the other is what needs to be done. I'm going to come on to the final point uh, about your courses. But before I do that, I will say when when clients come to us, some of them have made excuses for their behavior all their life and they finally come to the point where they know they need help and they want to take ownership and they start taking ownership and they start taking action every single day and then they feel guilty taking that their foot off the pedal if mm-hmm. something comes up if there's a death in the family or there's there's some sort of genuine reason to 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 justifiably take your foot off the, the pedal because they don't want to be accused of making excuses. And what makes you different, Kane, is your clients, the client relationship is very important. Clients will come to you and say, look, I'm not making excuses, but I do have this massive emotional issue happening. It is strategic for me to take a backseat in training and then hit it hard again once I've recovered. That That's an overall health viewpoint. And as an individual, we all know when we're cheating or when we're not pushing ourselves hard enough or when we're being a little bit lazy. And ultimately, you know, we have to look in the mirror and know when when's a good time to to slow down and when's a good time to proceed. And uh, your trainer can push you, but ultimately, whoever you train with, you are the ultimate authority on your own body and you know what's right for you. So... Um, yeah, so Kane, the last thing I want to share with uh, our listeners is you've got some amazing courses. When are your next events? When are your next courses? How can our audience members come up to Birmingham and learn more? Okay, well, let me redeem myself on the London issue. I am very happy to come to London to participate. <laughs> if there is ever uh, a request, a demand, I'm in fact with some of the chief executive groups, um, I did come down and run... Uh, it was a three-day event after speaking to one of the chief executive groups that some of your listeners may be aware of. Um, then lots of people there wanted my advice, wanted the blood test, wanted the whole you know, kind of input because I explained the importance of pre-assessment, individual diagnosis, and then prescription, be exercise, nutrition, whatever it might be. And then educated people, they got that. But they were too busy to leave London. And I get that. So they put me up, I had a nice apartment, and I spent three days doing back-to-back assessments after they went to a specific lab to get their blood test, so I get the results turn around generally in about four or five hours. 
they were amazed. They had the bloods done the one day, the next day they were sitting there and getting a full feedback consultation. So be it a seminar, be it consultations, you know, I've got a car and there's a train station near me. I'm more than happy to come to, to London and, and work with yourself and your clients because you know them better than I know them. But as you said, they know themselves. So there's a lot of, as you know, pre-questionnaires and food diaries and, you know, assessment work to be done. Do you have um, courses? I have run, yeah, run courses in London. I've run them in Manchester. I've run them in Cayman Islands in the Caribbean. I've run them in Kuwait and Bahrain. So I'm not scared to travel. But majority of the courses I'll run in Birmingham. I have one starting actually next Friday. The course that you've done, the Diploma in Advanced Nutrition for Optimum Health, where we look at all this in depth. And I have three people actually coming up from fairly central London, in fact. Um, so they stay over. We host them in a hotel and the like. Um, so there is a nutrition course starting next Friday, probably a bit late notice for that because you understand the pre-study. All of my courses definitely will be aware of very in-depth. I don't do the turn up and pass. I don't do the tick box, as they call it, uh, quizzes, which are also common in the industry, multiple choice. They're full written exams. The written paper takes several hours. Then you have a practical consultation. Then you have a presentation research topic to do. So... Please be assured, people, if you work with anybody that I've trained, Stephanie Webster's prime example, these people do know their stuff and they should be respected in that they have earned that diploma. And I do have uh, the diploma in personal training starting early next year, beginning of February at the moment we're looking at. And then we have advancements on that, such as the advanced personal trainer course. We have the advanced sports nutrition qualification. But I also bring over absolute legends in the industry, real authorities like Amara Kadogan, as you will be aware, he worked with the great Udo Erasmus. Uh, Stephanie, uh, myself met him years ago at the seminar. He is considered as Dr. Fat, wrote the definitive book, Fat to Heal, Fat to Kill. Uh, and I've had the absolute pleasure and honour of studying with these people, Paul Check, uh, Charles Pollockin, who recently passed away, authorities in their area, and that's where I like to share the best because I don't agree with everything they've all said, but the best of what they have said is stuff that makes sense to me. So whether it be in Birmingham, and, you know, we provide the, well, you pay for it, but we provide the accommodation on site, everything's arranged. We do master classes, births. I'm more than happy. Get a venue, get an audience. I'll pack my presentation pack <laughs> and I'll jump on the train. Kane, that's amazing. So your website is gbfitness.com. So if your all your courses are listed there and all of your uh, events are listed there. So thank you very much for coming on to the show and sharing your inspiring insights and helping urban health and keeping busy people healthy. Thank you so much, Kane. Thank you very much, all. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Stephanie.